On Friday night, we remembered the death of Jesus when we met together as a church for our first Good Friday service. Why do we call it Good Friday? And what is Good Friday all about? The book of Genesis tells us that when God created the world, at the end of each day, he declared that all he had made was good. And then on the day he created Adam and Eve, he declared that it was very good. Shortly after the creation story, everything we read in the Bible about mankind is anything but good. From the moment Adam and Eve decided to turn away from God and declare that they wanted to live lives on their own terms as they saw fit, everything about the world was bad, really bad. And as we read in the Bible, nothing has changed since that day. The world has become only darker. It has become more fearful. It has become more evil. It has become more self-centered and more distant from God than ever before. What was once declared very good is no longer good. What is even more terrifying is our continual decline as a society. And the consequence for that rebellion against God, the consequences are severe. The consequence is that we will one day experience his holy judgment. The consequence is his justice will be meted out to everyone. The terrifying consequence that we will receive is, and the appropriate consequence, is the agonizing penalty of punishment in eternal hell. Hell is a topic that is very countercultural. There is nothing good about this. Good Friday, though, is the day where hope returns. It's a, a day that hope returns to sinful humanity. Paul wrote in his letter to the Corinthian church, for our sake he made him, speaking of Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. On that day, God made Jesus sin in our place. Kent Hughes says this, Jesus was sinless through all his 33 years. He knew no sin, and he remained sinless when he became sin for us. So Christ became sin while remaining inwardly and outwardly impeccable. During those dark three hours of Good Friday, his heart, so to speak, became a sea surrounded by festering mountains of our sin into which flowed all our evils. There, the lonesome mass of our corruption poured over him. There, our sins were focused on Christ as he bore the fiery wrath of God, having become a curse for us. And he did it willingly. So he could say, son or daughter, your sins are forgiven. Good Friday is good because the only one in all of human history who was perfectly good met God's requirements for a perfect sacrifice. By dying, he paid the penalty for our sin so that all who could put their hope and trust in him 
to forgive their sins would experience his forgiveness and receive the gift of eternal life. That is a good Friday. The reason Good Friday is so good for us is the anticipation of celebrating what we know happens three days after his death. It's called the resurrection. And we declare that he has risen. The ultimate end and the undeniable proof that his sacrifice for our sins was acceptable to God. The very one who judged sin. The very one who poured out his wrath upon sin. It was acceptable to God to pay for our sin and to earn for us God's forgiveness. Just as we must understand what Good Friday means for us, even more so we must understand what the resurrection means for us. For some, if not many, Easter has lost its true meaning. Three little boys in Sunday school were asked by their teacher, what is Easter? And the little boy, first little boy replied, oh, that's easy. It's the holiday in November when everyone gets together, eats turkey, and is thankful. I'm sorry, replied the teacher, but that's not what Easter is about. And then asked the second little boy the same question. What is Easter? The second little boy replied, Easter is the holiday in December when we put up a nice tree, exchange presents, and celebrate the birth of Jesus. The teacher looked at the second little boy, shook her head in disappointment and said to him, I'm sorry, but that's not right either. And then peered over her glasses at the third little boy and asked, do you know what Easter is all about? The third little boy smiled confidently and looked at his teacher and looked her in the eyes and said, I know what Easter is. Oh, said the teacher skeptically, Easter is the Christian holiday that coincides with the Jewish celebration of Passover. Jesus and his disciples were eating at the Last Supper, and Jesus was later later and was deceived and turned over to the Jewish leaders and Romans by one of his disciples. The Romans took him to be crucified and he was stabbed in the side, made to wear a crown of thorns and was hung on a cross with nails through his hands. He was buried in a nearby cave which was sealed off by a large stone. The teacher smiled broadly with delight. The third little boy continued, and every year the stone is moved aside so Jesus can come out, and if he sees his shadow, there will be six more weeks of winter. (laughs) Not all understand Easter. And for those who have been transformed by the blood of Christ... They understand Easter. They understand Christ rising from the grave. For the past 15 months, we have been studying John's gospel. And we've held off for the past four weeks of reading John 20, which specifically John writes about the resurrection so that we could speak on it this morning. And so I'm going to read this entire chapter, and I would ask you to bear with me, follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, 
Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Peter was an older man. And stooping to look in the linen cloth lying there, but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, you know, John is writing this about himself, right? So, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed him his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of many, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. 
Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is the word of God. In John 20, 30, 31, John tells us that in composing his gospel, he chose specific signs that Jesus performed to highlight who Jesus is. The resurrection is the final sign, the most miraculous sign, the most remembered sign that points to Jesus truly being the Christ, the Son of God, and it declares that it is the ultimate proof that he is alive. John writes so that we will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. Of all the miracles that took place, there is no greater miracle that John records than the resurrection. No greater miracle. Jesus has risen from the dead. The resurrection is the most defining moment in all of human history. It is more than just an Easter Sunday morning. It is the most defining moment in all of human history. And it has eternal implications. Eternal implications for every person, whether they believe it or not. The reality of the resurrection... Is, is often questioned, did it really happen? That's the question many ask. Did it really happen? There are those who are skeptics or, or simply unbelievers that even though Jesus is a real person, was attested to as a real person in both religious and secular history, and even though he, there's many proofs in written form that he was a real person, Many still do not believe. And even though his crucifixion by the Romans is also attested to in written history, both in secular and religious history, still many do not believe that he rose from the dead. Even some liberal pastors don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. They just believe he, he's an inspirational person who remains alive in our hearts. They wrongly think that because he was an ordinary human, that when an ordinary human in our world dies, they stay dead. That's typical. But genuine Christians believe that Jesus did physically rise from the dead. They believe that the resurrection was and is a real event in human history, attested to by irrefutable evidence, historic evidence, written evidence. The tomb was empty of his body because he rose from the dead and left the tomb. Now, Christianity requires faith, but it requires a reasonable faith. It requires 
a reasonable belief that takes into account historic evidence, that takes into account that he really did rise from the dead based on eyewitnesses. First, we see in this account that the grave clothes no longer hold a body. So Peter went with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But there was no body. And Peter comes rushing in and he sees the the wrapping around Jesus' head neatly folded. But there was no body. The grave clothes as we read in in Luke's account, were filled with 75 pounds of burial spices that still remained on the grave clothes. Now, if robbers had come, thieves had stolen the body, they would not have left behind the clothes and they would have not left behind the spices. Roman soldiers guarded the tomb so that the followers of Christ could not steal the body and claim there was a resurrection. His opponents wouldn't steal the body because they didn't want to give any claim to the resurrection. And yet there's an empty tomb. And there are just grave clothes lying there. There are literally hundreds, if not close to a thousand historic documents, both religious and secular, that have been attested to today of the resurrection from eyewitness accounts. There are numerous eyewitnesses account. Mary, the other women, the 12 disciples, Cleopas on the road to Emmaus in, in Luke's gospel, other disciples, and then more than 500 eyewitnesses saw the resurrected Christ. Jesus not only appeared physically, because some say, well, he was just a ghost, but he ate, he drank, he spoke, he touched. Apparitions do not do that. Today, there is ongoing testimony of transformed lives in this room alone that prove the resurrection is real. But the disciples struggled to believe at first. They thought that that everything they had worked for was ruined on that Friday that Jesus was crucified. I, I, I get that. Not quite the same, but 1992, Atlanta Braves were playing in the National League Championship Series, Pittsburgh Pirates, Game 7, bottom of the ninth. It was at, it was at uh, Fulton County Stadium in Atlanta where we lived at the time. And the Braves were losing 3-2 to two in the bottom of the ninth with two outs and nobody on. And I went to bed. I went to bed because I struggled to believe there was no way the Braves could come back. It was over. It was done. And I get up the next morning 
and I take out, I get the Atlanta Journal-Constitution from my driveway, and the Braves win, Braves win, Braves win. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. The disciples went to bed. They just simply assumed it was all over. They were emotionally spent after the crucifixion. Their emotions were all over the place. There was fear. There was fear behind locked doors. There was confusion. There was unbelief. They struggled to believe. There was pain. There was despair. There was hopelessness. There was joy. There was celebration all at the same time. And although they struggled to believe after seeing the empty tomb and meeting with him, suddenly everything changed. And their faith became so firm. Their faith became so anchored in the truth of his resurrection that they were willing to follow him to the point of death. Peter was crucified upside down because he believed in Christ. Peter's wife was executed. Thomas The unbeliever here was executed for his faith. Paul was sawn in two. James was beheaded. Luke was executed. And many others throughout history have died believing that Jesus rose from the dead. They died believing his promise of eternal life. They died believing that he was alive and that they would meet him face to face one day. Did the resurrection really happen? Oh, yes. History records it. Eyewitnesses still proclaim it. Many today willingly suffer for it. And today the church still relies on it and celebrates the future hope that it promises. That's what the resurrection brings. It is true, and because it's true, it has huge implications for our lives today. John's gospel, when he writes this gospel, it has two purposes for writing this gospel. Telling good news to the unbeliever so that they might believe in Christ. And giving assurance to those who do believe in Christ. First point is this. The resurrection offers hope to those of you who do not believe. I'm not assuming everybody in this room believes in Jesus Christ. But what I want you to know is that the resurrection offers hope to you if you do not believe. John wrote this book about Jesus' life to tell the good news of why he came to earth. Sin has captured and it has scarred every human throughout history. It has darkened the world. Lives are filled with anger and hate and greed and lust and fear and immorality and selfishness and pride and murder and disobedience and many, many other sins which describe humanity. The weight of these sins committed by those in the past, those in the present, and those in the future, those sins, the weight of those sins crushed Jesus while he hung on the cross. But it was meant to do so. God 
crushed him. God, his father, crushed him and judged him and poured out his anger and wrath on him as a punishment for these sins, for our sins. Jesus came so we might have hope in something more than temporary life material things and money and pleasure and success and fame. He came because the Father so loved the world that He sent His only Son and that whoever would believe in Him would have eternal life. He came as a good shepherd to lead and care and provide and protect His sheep. He came that He might die so that we might live. The resurrection, for those of you who do not believe, means that the power of sin which holds you captive is broken if you trust in Christ. The resurrection means that the power of sin that not only holds you captive and causes anguish, grief, despair, depression, hopelessness, and destruction in your lives, it means that that sin is broken when you trust in Christ. All who are trapped in sin can be freed and all who will be punished for their sins can be forgiven. The resurrection means that the power of death, an event that everybody in this room will face, and everybody, many greatly fear, that death, the power of that death has been broken. Because Jesus rose from the grave. He is alive and he promises. He promises those who are forgiven of their sin and who believe in him will have eternal life. The resurrection offers hope to you who are here today and do not believe. It offers, it offers you the opportunity to believe. It declares to you to put your trust in the one who died for you so that you don't experience what Jesus experienced, the crushing weight of God's wrath for sin. If you do not believe, I plead with you today. Trust in Christ. Ask His forgiveness for your sins. Ask Him to free you from the slavery and power of sin. And when you do, you will experience the risen Christ. What you think is life now is black compared to the enormity and beautiful colors of what it means to be born again and to know Jesus Christ. The resurrection offers hope to you who are here today and do not believe. Secondly, the resurrection promises assurance to those of you who do believe. 
As Christians, the resurrection is the anchor in our life in Christ. Without it, our Christian faith has nothing to stand on. We just talk about a good man who lived a good life, who was inspirational and inspires our hearts today. That's all we have without the resurrection. But because of the resurrection, we have hope. Prior to the resurrection, the disciples flagged in their commitment to Jesus. They hid in a room on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. And when they were with Thomas eight days later, although the doors were locked, the risen Savior came and stood among them. These men were flagging in their commitment, yet Jesus came and speaks to them. And as he, the crucified Savior, the risen Savior, enters into their present, fear disappears. You have to understand, even after three years with Jesus, these men still fled at the crucifixion. They all abandoned him at that moment. They were all doubting followers. But the resurrection changed everything. For us, his resurrection promises eternal life. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. There is no eternal life if the Lord was not alive. And Mary has seen the Lord. And it promises the hope of eternal life to all who believe in him. John 3.16, that most famous verse, particularly because it's at every football game that has ever been played. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. His resurrection gives us hope of eternal life because he rose from the dead and he promised that we would rise from the dead. And for those of us who are aging, we're looking forward to that more than ever. Because the bodies that we get at the resurrection are not the same that we're walking around in now. I hear a lot of amens going on in this crowd. <laughs> that was from the oldest man in the room. <laughs> His resurrection not just only promises eternal life, it gives us divine peace. Look at verse 19. He stand, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Again in verse 21, peace be with you. Again in verse 26, peace be with you. The resurrection proves that our confidence in Jesus as the caretaker of his church which he is, is real. Three times he speaks peace to them. You remember when we studied John 14, Jesus told this to his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. 
neither let them be afraid. Believe also in me. Oh, what what a wonderful promise. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. And yet he shows up among them alive and says, peace be with you. His resurrection promises peace for those who believe in him. And in a world that is wracked with anything but peace. In a world where fear envelops many because of terrorism and disease and crime. Jesus stands among and says, peace be with you because I'm alive. His resurrection fulfills the promise that he gave that he would send the Spirit. Verse 22, he speaks to them. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this this receiving, this breathing on them, this giving of the Holy Spirit here was not what we see in Acts 2 when the Spirit was poured out upon the disciples and their lives were radically transformed. Their, their lives were actually not radically transformed with the giving of this Spirit here. It was, it was days later at Pentecost that the giving of the Spirit, this was a symbolic gesture by Jesus at this moment, but a reminder as well, a reminder of of the promise that I am going to pour out my spirit on you. You are going to be empowered by my spirit, strengthened by my spirit, given hope by my spirit, taught by my spirit, counseled by my spirit, comforted by my spirit, because I promise and I'm alive. Just wait. Just wait. It's coming. And come it did. And it did transform the lives of every person in that room. A transformation that was so broad and so powerful that we sit here today experiencing the the result of that transformation. And it has transformed our lives. There isn't a person in this room who can't think back to the life they lived prior to coming to faith in Christ, prior to being born again. And you look back on that life and you think, oh, where I was one year, five, ten, twenty years ago, (laughs) fifty. We have been transformed. His resurrection, the Holy Spirit is the seal of Jesus' promise to us that all that He promised us will come to pass. It's the seal of his forgiveness. It's the seal of his approval. It's the seal of him making us righteous. It's the seal of him promising and providing eternal life. It's the seal of his love for us. It's the guarantee. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee. And that Holy Spirit only came because Jesus rose from the dead. His resurrection creates gospel fruit. The resurrection empowers by the Spirit that was soon to be given to the disciples for gospel ministry. Here, they're hiding in a room. And then just, just days later, at Pentecost, the Spirit is poured out. They're proclaiming the gospel boldly. They're going to prison. They're being crucified. They're being put to death. They're being slaughtered by Nero in a Roman Colosseum, 
And yet the word spread. And you sit here today. D.A. Carson said in his commentary, there is no doubt from the context that the reference here is to forgiving sins. Look at verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now what is, what is John writing here? He's talking about the preaching of the gospel. That when you preach the gospel, it either brings someone to a place where they repent and receive forgiveness or they reject And they do not receive forgiveness. Carson says this, There is no doubt from the context that the reference is to forgiving sins or withholding forgiveness. But though this sounds stern or harsh, it is simply the result of preaching the gospel, which either brings men to repent as they hear of the ready and costly forgiveness of God, or leaves them unresponsive to the offer of forgiveness, which is the gospel. And so they are left in their sins. The resurrection... compels us to be the church that provides a powerful witness as we live life together. It compels us to preach the gospel whether people respond or not because we believe in the forgiveness of God and we want it for others. His resurrection shows us that we are also known by God. This is, to me, in this passage, the most powerful verse in the entire chapter. Verse verse 16. Jesus said to her, Mary. The resurrection reveals God's personal love and knowledge of those who believe in him. Mary heard the only word necessary, the only word necessary to believe that Jesus was truly alive. She heard Jesus speak her name. Mary. Mary. And everything changed. Mary. And she runs back. I have seen the Lord. In John 10, Jesus said, the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own by name. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know my voice. He knew Mary and he called her by name. And for those who have trusted in Christ, he knows you by name. And there will be a day when you do die and you do stand before the Lord. And it won't be a crowd milling about before the the risen Lord. It will be you. And you will hear your name spoken by the one who rose from the dead. He was a good shepherd who knew his sheep and those sheep knew his voice. Even Thomas, who was a doubter. We have seen the Lord, the disciples tell him, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. 
Not I will not believe. I will never believe. That's a pretty powerful statement. Having spent three years with the Savior. Having heard the guys that he was closest with for three years say, we've seen the Lord. Having Mary said, I have seen the Lord. And Thomas goes, I will never believe. And yet Jesus comes among him. And, and Jesus, in his omniscience, knows eight days later, he comes and he comes among them in locked doors. And he says, peace be with you. And he looks at Thomas and he says, go ahead and put your fingers here. I would have hated to be Thomas at that moment. <laughs> no, no need to. I believe. <laughs> And yet Jesus was very patient with him. And he is patient with us. And finally, his resurrection propels our mission. It propels our mission. The resurrection was not the end of Jesus' mission, but the beginning of it through his church. We now live for something greater than ourselves. We live to please and obey God just as Jesus lived to please and obey his Father. And we live to work as he worked so that others might be sitting in this room a year from now who don't know Christ today. We live, we live our lives together as the church so that we provide a powerful witness to the world that God is a transforming God because his son is alive. My friends, we celebrate his resurrection because it's true. Because he is alive. He came back from the dead and he fulfilled all his promises. What assures us that this is true is his ever-present and empowering spirit that lives right here in his people. If you're not a Christian this morning, you can put your trust in him. You can believe. Come to him. And ask his forgiveness. Come to him. Acknowledge your sin. If you are a Christian, then let this day today once again remind you of how he transformed you and all that he has done for you and will do for you because he is alive. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your willingness to crush your own son for our sins so that we could receive forgiveness and be reconciled to you. Thank you that you have saved us and you have declared us your children. Lord, may we today celebrate even more this wonderful resurrection truth that your son is alive and 
sits today at your right hand. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.